Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Joining me this week, back from her lengthy sabbatical and sporting an unlikely American accent and some troubling pro-gun leanings, is Thea Lenarduzzi. Welcome back, Thea. <laughs> Thank you. I'm also back from America recently. Did you enjoy it? Uh, I Yes, I enjoyed it very much. I'm hoping you're not going to ask me what literary things I, I got about up to. to. I was actually about to ask you that. Do you have anything? Well, it was a road trip and I, I get sick if I read in a car. So I spent most of my time just dipping into um, Michael and Jane Stern's road food book. Okay. A fabulous compendium. Highly recommended to anyone who plans to go driving in America. And nearly literary. <laughs> yes, sort of. Well, it was a book. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Each week we will be coming to you to discuss major pieces from this week's TLS on big ideas or authors. And coming up on the show today, we have a week of writers who perhaps above all, show us the importance of geography. Thomas Hardy is most associated with the fictitious county of Wessex he created, which formed the home and backdrop for many of his novels and poems. Mark Ford has traced another, this time real, location that provided a formative influence on Hardy, London. An essay from his book, Thomas Hardy, Half a London, is extracted in the TLS this week, and Mark will be joining us. Whatever happened to Aravind Adiga, the Booker-winning novelist? After White Tiger, he produced Between the Assassinations, which was actually written first, a wonderful and beautiful collection of intertwined short stories set in India, and then a novel, Last Man in Tower. Five years later, he's now given us Selection Day, and Hirsch Sawney has reviewed it for us. Finally, this week's TLS has a special Middle East feature, 12 pages of reviews attempting to describe and explore the parlous condition of the region, its causes and consequences. Robert Irwin, our Middle East editor, joins us to discuss what lines we can draw and why, and will also be helped by our fiction and politics editor, Toby Lichtig. We will close the show with a poem, Mark Ford reading the lovely Coming Up Oxford Street Evening by Thomas Hardy. So to London first, we're all comfortable with the idea of Dickens's London, the man and author synonymous with the crammed and colourful Victorian streets filled with melodrama and caricature. But Thomas Hardy, the creator of Wessex, is often cited in a rural setting, indeed perhaps seen as a novelist par excellence of the countryside. Mark Ford aims to change that, arguing in his book Thomas Hardy, Half a Londoner, for the importance of London to his career and development. Ford says that the oscillations between the routines and concerns of higher Bockhampton, his birthplace and family home, and the excitements of dangers of London were crucial to his profound personal sense of self-division, of being torn between worlds that were mutually dependent but often mutually uncomprehending. Mark joins Thea and me now. Hi, Mark. Hi. Mark, let's start with Hardy's early London experience, which you regard as key. He came to London in 1862 as an apprentice architect who was dabbling with being a writer. He stayed for five years, and at one level, not much happened. He kind of went home unpublished. Why did you think that period, though, was significant for him? Well, it was his first break from um, Dorset, and arriving in London when he was 21 must have been an extraordinary uh, experience for him, someone who had really very little knowledge of the world outside uh, Dorchester and higher Bockhampton. And yes, as you said, he worked as an architect, but he had literary ambitions and desires, and he gratified those in London. He spent a lot of the time reading on his own, but he also participated in the kind of culture of London life. He went to 
see Dickens read. He went to the music hall. He went to uh, the galleries, the very important art galleries. And I think without these five years in London, he could never have returned to Dorset as he did in 1867 and had a kind of perspective on Dorset, which would enable him to turn it into Wessex. So in the book, I'm interested not just in Hardy's life in London, but the ways in which Hardy's life in London changed him so much that when he goes back, when he returns as a native, he has this different perspective on his uh, where he grew up and is able to transform it into this half-real, half-dream country, Wessex. So it's a very interesting time as well, isn't it, to be in London, because he, he went he went up there in 1862, and that's almost the date to the year that Great Expectations was published. And that kind, that book kind of taps into this time when social mobility was, was more real than it perhaps had ever seen before. And, you know, everyone was wanting or expected to want to be a gentleman. You kind of get the idea of, of, of Hardy, the son of a mason, going to London to, to make it. And, and, you know, those are the days when elocution manuals and self-help guides really, really flourished. And you have this idea of Hardy in his room, as you say, embarking on a... It's kind of like a, a self-imposed finishing school. Uh, that's right. I mean, Hart, the trajectory of Hardy's life was one of upward mobility. I mean, quite extraordinary upward mobility, which London made possible. As you say, the son of a of a mason ending up invited to all the most aristocratic uh, parties and moving in circles, uh, meeting the prime minister and royalty and so on later in life when Tessa d'Urbervilles made him popular and famous. But uh, throughout, he had this notion of um, moving up in society, as Dickens did. And there are lots of parallels, I think, between Pip in Great Expectations and Hardy. Uh, and the book that he wrote after returning from London was called The Poor Man and the Lady. And it was about, um, as Great Expectations is, Hardy's fantasy of somehow marrying a lady. Uh, he married someone from the middle classes eventually rather than a lady. But there's an interesting moment when his father comes up and Hardy writes a letter and he recreates his father's Dorset speech and is rather patronizing about his father, just as Pip is about Joe Gargery when he comes to visit him. Uh, in London. So if we stick to the chronology of this, he goes home, back home after five years, unpublished, but as you say, having absorbed the influences of London. He then comes back to London in 1872, which is his 32nd year. And this you regard as a, as a pivotal moment for him, don't you? Well, yes, he, he came up uh, up and back to London from 67 to 72. So he, he was always coming up to London to see how the poor man and the lady was getting on with publishers and it wasn't getting on. They'd go back to Dorchester uh, defeated. So he popped up quite a lot. But in 1872, having had his first novel published but badly reviewed uh, in, uh, and um, remaindered, uh, he gave up writing and he said, I will be an architect. He'd already met Emma in uh, two years earlier in 1870 and he was desperate or keen uh, to marry her. Uh, and the only way in which he could support her was by becoming, as he felt in 1872, uh, an architect. But he had already written under the Greenwood tree by then, which had been rejected, as he thought, by Macmillan. So he came up, he left that behind in Higher Bockhampton, and he set about trying to make his career yet again as an architect in the city. And he's, he's suffering from failing eyesight at this point as well, isn't he? That's what he tells us in The Life. He ran into his friend Horace Moole, and he told Moole he was giving up writing, and Moole said, well, why not keep a hand on it in case anything happened to your eyes? Uh, because an architect needs his eyes, but a, a writer could dictate, like Milton <laughs> works. And uh, a couple of days later, Hardy sees specks floating before his eyes, and he's thinking at this point, I think, I'm not even going to make it, I'm not, I'm not going to make it as a writer, I'm not going to make it as an architect uh, either, because my eyesight's going. So this is really a low point in his career. You talk about the life, which uh, I don't know if um, this is common or not, but sort of biography purported to be by his wife, but actually written by him. And it seems to be the provider of a lot of details on, on the life of Hardy, understandably. Is that sort of crypto-autobiography a common thing, that, that uh, he's sort of ghosting it through his wife? Uh, not really. I mean, it's in the tradition of the Victorian uh, hagiography, the Victorian celebration, like Forster's Dickens, in which the, the, the writer is a kind of not some it's not like a modern biography in which we learn all the um uh, all the dirt on a writer so that it, it's a kind of positive take but what what hardy did is he went through his notebooks and his letters uh and he took from them what he felt was would be interesting for this biography and he incorporated them and he then destroyed the originals and he wrote it in the third person and florence wrote it up well or, i mean 
it's quite it's quite interesting in itself how how he does do that, and it was, it's almost because he does just he he does want the life to be written in the third person. It just makes it so much closer to the way his novels read as well. You, when you when the the extracts that you've pulled in, into your piece, it, it, it really feels like he's sort of trying to position himself as a character in one of his own novels with these you know these twists of fate and a character thinks something will happen such and such a way and then it happens quite quite differently and it, you really feel like he, he you know he's a character moving through his own his own story in that way. That's very true, and he didn't use the first person for his novels. Exactly. Um, or very rarely. Uh, the Poor Man and the Lady was written in the first person, we know. He destroyed it, unfortunately, but otherwise he used the third person. So in that way, he's not like Dickens, who used it in David mm. Copperfield and Great Expectations. Uh, and yes, it is a fabrication, and he enjoyed a kind of, it wasn't exactly perverse or malicious, but he enjoyed playing tricks. Uh, on his readers, I think, and particularly on critics and those looking for a biographical interpretation of his life. And this was his way of outwitting them. Mm -hmm. Uh, He enjoyed outwitting certainly his detractors, but those who sought to interpret his life and work. And the Metropolitan Reviewer, he he particularly had it in for him. Yes, I think you see throughout Hardy's life a kind of dialogue, uh, um, uh, agonistic dialogue developing between the heroic provincial and the metropolitan libertine, you might say. Mm. And Aeneas Manston in Desperate Remedies is a good example of the metropolitan libertine who is um, sophisticated, a bit immoral, and the provincial hero whom Hardy relates to will be Edward Springrove in that in Desperate Remedies. So you often see this kind of dialogue going on in, in Hardy's novels between a somebody provincial but who is then corrupted or is in some kind of conflict with uh, a metropolitan, often a literary type, in a pair of blue eyes. Mm. Uh, you get it between the, the, the Henry Knight is, a, is a, a, a writer, a London writer. I think it's very interesting how in a pair of blue eyes um, you've got these two figures, these two gentlemen, but of very different kinds. You've got um, Henry Knight, who is sort of born into gentleman uh, dum, and, um, oh, the other guy, um, Stephen Smith, yes. who is basically, it seems like he's he's a stand-in for, for Thomas Hardy and that he's a, a man of, of humble rural origins who went to the city and, and, and he polished himself up that way. Um, and they both come back to, to Cornwall to, to woo this, this um, rural heroine. Yes, I mean, Hardy says in the life that Stephen Smith was not at all related to him, but Stephen Smith is so closely related (laughs) to Hardy. It's one of his most kind of absurd protestations. That's normally a telltale sign that it's it's a telltale (laughs) sign that's very accurate normally, isn't it? And Stephen Smith is the son of a mason. And what's even more gruesome in that particular case in the kind of social setting is that he lives very close to where Elfrida Swancourt lives. So her family is aware of his very humble family. So it's not even as if he's from a different part of of, um, uh, the country as Hardy was when he was courting Emma Gifford. But yes, London is the kind of, is the hope of, of Stephen Smith that they can, he and Elfrida can escape to London and somehow lead a professional life in London. But they elope there, and as soon as they get there, they spend 15 minutes in London. They're so appalled by it that they go back home again. And this is a, um, a, a terrible kind of failing for Elfrida in that she's now, she's been spotted and she's now a fallen woman. And for those reasons, Henry Knight, whom she later falls in love with, won't marry her when he hears of this uh, escapade, this failed elopement. But London seemed to Hardy to offer this escape from the uh, class constrictions which would always have him placed uh, in in Dorset or in, in Dorchester. Uh, can we talk briefly about the poetry? Are you one of these hardy aficionados who prefers the poetry to the novels? I am indeed. I yeah. think the poetry is... Uh, the, the, I can't... There are no superlatives to describe the poetry. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. It's, it's my, I'm not an aficionado at all, but it's my experience of, of Hardy that once you start reading the poems, you do sort of move away from the novels. And what was, because he wrote a poem, you're going to read it for us uh, at the end of uh, the show, but there's a lovely poem coming up Oxford Street evening. Was was London a, in that early, the early days a fertile period for him from a poetical point of view? Yes, he spent his five, first five years, uh, 1862 to 1867, writing lots and lots of poetry. Now he tells us he sent it out and it, was rejected by magazines. but well, There's no record of magazines rejecting it, but I don't think we can disbelieve him either. But he kept about 29, 30 poems from that period, which he wrote in Westbourne Park Villas. He often signals where he wrote them at the bottom of the text when they were printed in Wessex poems. So uh, he wrote enormously, and poetry was an overwhelming revelation for Hardy. 
it was almost a kind of spiritual or mystical, even religious experience. So writing poetry, finding poetry was the beginning of his life. And the fact he couldn't get published was terrible for him. And poetry was what he wanted to write. And he only wrote novels, or so he later claimed, as a way of supporting himself. And tell us briefly about coming up Oxford Street evening, because this is in, as seen, 1872. So this is the critical period, uh, as you say, in his return uh, to London after that initial visit here. Uh, what do you make of this poem? Well, it's a very interesting one. He didn't publish it till 1925, so, but Hardy kept notes of scenes he observed and wrote them up later. And this is a, a fascinating poem because it was when Hardy was working as an architect, living in Paddington, as he had uh, the previous decade, working just off the Strand, commuting from Paddington to the Strand. He used to walk up Oxford Street, and uh, he sees this clerk, or, or this is what we're supposed to believe, who is trudging home and is empty of interest in life. But in the uh, original version, the clerk wasn't in the third person. He was in the first person. He dazzles the pupils of one who walks west. Me, city clerk, uh, with eyesight, not of the best. And it ends, I go along with head and eyes drooping forlorn, taking no interest in things and wondering why I was born. So uh, Hardy then revised that because he didn't want to be too personal. But it's, it's interesting uh, that he did so. And he meets this kind of uh, what is presented in the poem as a doppelganger, a poor city clerk uh, who is, can't enjoy any of the pleasures of London because he's got no money. But in fact, in the original version of it, it was Hardy himself he was describing. So it wasn't it, it, as seen, or if he was seen on Oxford Street, it was in a mirror rather than on the street itself. Well, it's a, a lovely poem, and, and we'll get you to read it shortly. But Mark, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, the book is called Half a Lon- Thomas Hardy, Half a Londoner. An extract is printed in this week's TLS. And if you're interested in Hardy as a poet or a novelist, it really is a must-read. Mark, thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. Not at all. Are you someone, Thea, who prefers the novels to the poems? Um, no. No, no. I, I, I always quite enjoyed the novels. So I, I don't know, I see them as, as, as separate things, separate things yeah. I suppose. But I do, I, I am particularly, I did find this this poem particularly illuminating. No um, no. no joke intended there, but because it really seems, it's a period that I've been reading about for another thing, but it, this poem really seems to kind of encapsulate the, the disillusionment that one might feel if, if one thought that in going to London one could really, you know, overcome the divisions between classes and things like that. You know, the the idea of someone being dazzled by lights and, you know, so that everything seems possible. And the poem falls so easily or so, so rigidly into these two different uh, views yeah. on it. I mean, cynicism in London is um, it's a necessary partnership, I suppose, isn't it? There's yes. no point in idealising the place too much and you get a sense of that cynicism here, don't you? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Let's move on to another writer who fixes his fiction with a profound sense of place, Aravan Adiga. He won the Booker Prize in 2008 for his novel The White Tiger, then published the wonderful selection of short stories Between the Assassinations and the novel Last Man in Tower. He has now published a new novel, Selection Day. It is set in the world of Mumbai by cricket, an example of how the post-liberalisation of India has let in the forces of vibrant, crass commercialisation, the genteel colonial game transported into a world of flash and bash. Uh, the protagonist is a 14-year-old boy called Manju Kumar, a gifted athlete who becomes a cricketer as a means of ensuring his family enter the world of the moneyed middle class. Hirsch Swarney has reviewed the book for us and joins Thea and me now. Hi, Hirsch. Hi there, Stig. How are you doing in London? I'm doing very well. We met each other in Brooklyn Literary Festival. Oh, I was you? sitting uh, at the TLS stand and you, you came back and you've given me a copy of your book as well, which I look forward to reading. Well, uh, I'm glad that made it into your hands. I, I wasn't sure if uh, if those manning it were going to be able to pass it on, but, no, but I'm glad that they... I've transported it all the way back uh, to London. But what, were you do- what were you doing at the Brooklyn Literary Festival? Were you doing a panel on something? I was doing a panel about novelists who write about issues of migration and 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 write about i I think being kind of located in in you know two different nations or two different different communities you know as they create their work which is what you is just that true of you do you think yes certainly i mean it's true of it's true of my entire life it's true of always feel like i'm defined by uh, multiple cities communities nations as i live breathe interact drink beer write reviews for the tls or or create at the novels. same time <laughs> yes all literally at the same time yeah that's good well let's let's talk about um the adiga book because it looks like a actually a very interesting and worthwhile read give us your verdict on it as a novel you, you think this is a good thing don't you i think it's a great thing and I, I think it is really kind of demonstrates kind of adiga's evolution 
as a novelist. It, it's indicative of, of his willingness to kind of take some risks, lose a certain sense of control, uh, which I think is probably hard to do. As uh, you know, as a as a writer, I know it's hard to do. You know, he he has. He has kind of carved out a little niche for himself as a writer who uses irony and wit uh, and cynicism and plotting to tell important truths about globalization, about India, and also just about the entire world and, and the inequity that seems to increasingly define it. And, and, and so he could have kind of kept on going uh, with that sense of irony, with that tight plotting, which, you know, is almost cinematic. And I, I, think, I think it was a big risk to kind of uh, loosen the reins off on plot, be more meditative, more ruminative. And, and that's exactly what he's done. And, and I think that speaks to the potential for him just to keep on growing and evolving uh, as a writer and to, you know, and to write 10 or 12 great books that just keep on getting better and more complex and more dynamic. We were talking about uh, Hardy earlier on, but um, I mentioned this to you actually when we, we met in, in New York. The, uh, Deeg, because I read Between the Assassinations uh, back in the day, and he's a bit like Dickens in, in the sense of that it, 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 there is that sort of satirical edge to the descriptions, but very much placed in a location. You know the location of a book by a Deeg when you read it. He puts you slap bang in the middle of uh, of a city when he when he writes about it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, his, the sense of place that he infuses to his work uh, is is kind of fundamental to it and can be quite biting at times and, and, and almost cynical. I think one thing that writers do when they write about India, in particular South Asia, you know, they tend to either go for kind of a highly kind of spiritualized description of the place or, or they pay supreme attention to the ironies of globalization, the, the contradicts of globalization, or, or potentially they go for kind of the exotic bent. Uh, what's really great about this new novel or, and interesting is that uh, Adiga kind of managed to encapsulate the totality of, of a city like Bombay. He, he he admires the beauty. He admires the kind of subtropical nature of things, the, the birds flying, the neem trees. Uh, and of course, being who he is, he doesn't forget about pollution. He doesn't forget about the the side effects of rapid industrialization. And I think that's, again, indicative of progress in his work, evolution in his work. In his first, uh, in his first novel, The White Tiger, he, he was just so highly skeptical and uh, cast a pretty indicting spotlight physically uh, on globalization and its repercussions. But I was, I was going to say, talking about evolution, Adiga did start out as a journalist, didn't he? He started out writing for the Financial Times about investment market and, and financial markets. You see the journalistic roots in the work, definitely. And, and there is this great familiarity with sociological and political issues. And, and I think what what works with Adigo's fiction is that he allows this erudition to inform the ways he shapes character and plot, and, and, and he doesn't use his characters and plotting to, to kind of give him an excuse to wax poetical in a journalistic or, uh, or proselytizing fashion. One of the, the, the plot lines is that Manchester comes to terms with his sexuality. Does yes. the book tell us interesting things about being gay in India? I'm sure that's, that feels like a sort of a fertile area for a novelist. Yeah, it definitely talks about the both latent and overt homophobia in contemporary Indian society. And and, and again, Digo's all about complexity. He's all about, you know, not ascribing blame or fault or culpability to a, to a single entity. So in the book, we see uh, the Indian Penal Code being directly responsible for homophobia. And of course, the Indian Penal Code uh, is a relic from India's colonial past. Uh, but we also see new media perpetuating homophobia, according to much mainstream media, something like a globalized, uh, technologized media would be something that would create progressive attitudes towards homosexuality. Uh, Adiga, in fact, suggests the opposite in some parts of the book. Uh, so, so and, and yeah, we, we, but, but on a much more emotional and psychological level, he really paints a, a unique perspective of a boy coming to terms and questioning his sexuality in India, but, but, it, but it could be anywhere in many respects. One thing I admired was that Adiga seemed to be like avoiding binaries of like gay and straight. This young boy, he is attracted to a man, but uh, you know, the sight of a woman's back might give him an erection. Uh, he also, at the beginning of the book, gets off on the sight of a corpse, I believe, from, from the television program CSI. Uh, so, so I think he's suggesting that sexuality is just is messy. Uh, that is messy and, and sexuality, no... I think. If you're, if, you're, if you're getting aroused by CSI corpses, that's on the messy side of the spectrum, I'd say. 
It certainly is. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not clean. The religious politics have been new interest to me on this because the hero is Muslim and he's battling against Hindu Islamophobia. That seems like a relatively rare perspective in English uh, language writing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. To, to, to take on. It, it really is. You know, but, so, in fact, the protagonist here is a Hindu, but he, he lives in, a, in oh. a Bombay in which the signs of Hindu extremism are ubiquitous. And, and there is this kind of rhetoric that is highly d- discriminatory towards Muslims that, you know, we see the characters espouse. Uh, we see the, you know, we, we see the politicians espouse. And, 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 and there is a consciousness about these issues uh, in Indian writing and English. It's brave and important to kind of to be aware of them and, and to bring them to the limelight uh, in the way that Adiga has consistently done. And again, he's not simplistic about it. Uh, his characters and his books do kind of admit uh, that that there is violence committed by people in the name of Islam, uh, and, and they question, uh, they, they, they admit that we shouldn't be so, uh, so intent on questioning Islamophobia that we, that as intellectuals, that we don't pay attention or, or investigate uh, violence committed in the name of religion. But overall, from Adiga, we're, we, we get this message that, uh, that you know, Hindu, Muslim, uh, Christian, people commit violence, and they, they kind of, and, and all different types of ideologies, regardless of uh, nationality, of economic system, can be used to perspetuate violence. And, uh, yeah, there's a real sense in which all of these different orders or systems of rule, you know, in, in sport or science or religion or economics, are all kind of imbricated in each other. They're all increasingly invested in each other. There's a certain sense in which that term angel investor really really resonates there. Um, I, I reviewed it um, when it came out. It's beautiful. I and mean, that's the, the other thing. We'll have to leave it here, but it, it's for all the, the geopolitical notions that he's tackling here, he's first and foremost, I think, a writer of, of, of great beauty and clarity. And, and there's some uh, really lovely phrasing in throughout between the assassinations, I think. And, and that's worthy of notes. Well, he's, he is a proper writer. He writes beautiful sentences. Mm. I think that's exactly right. He writes interesting characters who are complex. He writes. He, he possesses beautiful language, and he he's willing to take risks. He's willing to infuse a touch of surrealism in a in a totally psychologically real narrative. 
unafraid of breaking with convention, and, and, and these are the people who have long-term viability as writers. Great stuff. Well, well, well listen, thank you so much for, for joining us, Hirsch. This lovely review. It seems like a really interesting book, Selection Day by Aravind Adiga. I'm going to go and read it. Uh, nice to see you the other day, and thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Dick. Take care, and it was good to meet you the other day. Take care. Yeah, I, I think that's important. That Sometimes you always just end up reading novels or you can be made to read novels as if they're political manifestos mm. and you kind of lose the fact that mm. actually the main purpose of a novel is, to, is I think, to mm. contain to be, beautiful language and be interesting. That is also utterly transferable. So it's not like, here you go, here's a post-colonial novel. This is a novel that is a post-colonial novel. And yeah. you read it in the context and only in the context of that. I argue with people at the TLS about this, but the, the introduction of theory into appreciation... <laughs> oh no, here we go. I hate it. I hate post- <laughs> colonial Marxist readings. I can't bear it all. The, 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 the perversion of theory into the study of English is a, is a terrible one. Okay. Should we, should we leave that for another day? Another we, should, day. we should do a podcast, a about, podcast. Yeah, a podcast about literary theory. I'm very up for that. Right, we must move on. Let us switch to another location even more riven with religious tension than India, the Middle East. The TLS has this week devoted a 12-page special to the region, examining through a series of reviews the politics that have created the chaos and the carnage, the religious visions that support it, and the sense of place and home that somehow sustains it against all the odds. Our feature includes Thomas Smalls on the rise of the caliphate, a theological idea of mainstream Islam that minimises the role of secular society, sacralises warfare, and ensures that the West Western world remains no more than anxious bystanders in the region. That point is picked up by Francis Robinson, who reviews Ephraim Karsh's book that seeks to downplay the role of the West in the Middle East. It's local actors that matter, not foreign interlopers. Diana Dark discusses the horrors and humanity of Homs and Aleppo. Oswin Murray gives us the devastation of Palmyra and Jack Schenker the troubled history of Sinai. We also have John Bew on the difficulties inherent in fighting terrorism and Lydia Wilson on how fighting terrorism has has endangered and toxified humanitarian aid. Robert Irwin is the TLS's Middle East editor who's contributed a piece on the role of the Crusades. He joins us, as does TLS politics editor Toby Lichtig, all together huddled in this studio. There's an awful lot to pick up here, but let's start with the conclusion of Thomas Smalls' piece on the caliphates, because I think that's a, it's a, a good jumping-off point. He says this, In this era of civil wars, the Islamists are the true actors. The role of the United States has really been that of an uncomprehending bystander, inadvertently unleashing the destructive potential of the Islamists' toxic and deadly ideology. Robert, do you think that's a fair assessment of where we are, the United States, an uncomprehending bystander, and the Islamists at the centre of the action? Yes, I I think it is. Uh, There is a lot to uncomprehend. Um, (laughs) I'm not in totally sympathy with Thomas Small's argument uh, about the purely religious nature of the ISIS movement and related Islamist movements in the world today. It strikes me that rather a lot of the people fighting with ISIS in Syria and Iraq are ex-Ba'athist generals with um, very secular background, former criminals who've come from Britain or France or elsewhere, young people looking for adventure. One thinks of those two young uh, British Muslims who went out, stopped at, I think it was Heathrow Airport and bought Islam for dummies. Okay, they've got a caliph out there in Raqqa, and that's the centre of the ISIS operation, theoretically. But you need more than a caliph to have an Islamic state. You need a khatib, you need religious lawyers and clergymen, you need qadis, you need a whole background. And also, you know, you can't just say, oh, I'm a caliph, you know, (laughs) because... You know, I'm a caliph, you're a caliph, who's going to lead the donkey? Um, Normally, I mean, in the past, traditionally, the caliph would be chosen by a shura, a a, a kind of council of of wise people. And this doesn't seem to have happened in this case. But the question, I suppose, is that is the notion of a sort of theocratic, very martial state, is that hardwired into Islamic theology or not? Because whether or not people are in it for the theology, the theology potentially legitimises it. Um, yes, it's there in the the first four caliphs, the so-called rightful rightful caliphs, the Rashidun. It's there at the very beginnings of the Umayyad caliphate. Uh, it's there again with the very beginnings of the Abbasid caliphate in the uh, let me think mid eighth century. Um, but thereafter, the sort of usually sort of fades away, and the, the later caliphs of the Umayyads and the Abbasids, not to mention the Almohads and the Almoravids, are really just kings who are calling themselves caliphs, and there isn't a real theocracy. But at least they've got some of the religious structure there, which this ISIS state just doesn't have that religious structure. It seems to be primarily a military organisation. Because the other thing that people say is that the sort of Sunni-Shia split, which is effectively the split over who succeeds Muhammad, Mm. 
is the heart of the, the, the schism within the Middle East. The problems within the Middle East are effectively caused by that split within the Islamic religion. Is that, do you think we downplay that in the West? Do you think we, are, we've, we fail to recognise that much of this tension in the area comes from effectively a, a theological dispute between Sunnis and Shias? Yeah, um, the schism has always been there, well, from the, from the first century of Islam onwards, and it's had sort of particular resurgences in the 16th century of the Safavids against the Ottomans and so on. But usually it's a fairly passive, it's a sort of hostile coexistence between the two communities would broadly characterise it. What occurs to me is that Islam is kind of running six or seven hundred years behind Christianity and it's yet to have its 30 years war and it's now having that 30 years war at the end of which they'll sort of end up exhausted and it'll be as at the end of the 30 years war, Kuyus Regio eos religio. Yeah. Uh, he whose region it is, he says, decides what the re- dominant religion is going to be. I think that's got to happen. And Will there be a reformation then as well? Then yes, it's bound to be of some kind. I hope it would be a, a reformation in the direction of Sufism, which previously has been a fairly dominant form of Islam. I can't see the ISIS ideology sustaining itself at the white heat that it's going. It will fade, all things fade. You know, Nasserism was the great craze of the, uh, the 60s. It failed, and uh, sort of the various sort of quasi-Nasserist regimes also failed, uh, Budiba and uh, Tunisia and so on. I think eventually it's just going to run out of energy. It's like the Lebanon now. The Lebanon had years of bitter sectarian fighting, and now they've just said, I can't afford it anymore. They've just laid down their guns effectively. I mean, there are occasional clashes, but really the Lebanon is in an exhausted peace, and I think that's probably what's got to happen in the Yemen, in Iraq, and in Syria. There's already some evidence that IS is, is beginning to kind of fade, isn't there? And their, 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 their grip on power seems to be waning slightly. And their pushback in Iraq mm. and, and um, less so in Syria, that feels like that's a slightly harder place to shift them from. They, they're rather obsessed with this place called Darbik, which is a small, it's a tiny village, and I think a sort of grassy plain northeast of Aleppo, where it's foretold the end of the world will take place. And, and they're looking forward to the last battle in Darbik, so they really want to hang on to certain bits of northern Syria for escalation logical reasons. That's, I, that, I find really interesting about the, the smalls piece that this notion of mm. of end times is mm. critical to the theology. And so the caliphate is the fourth stage mm. in what amounts to awaiting judgment day. Yeah, that, that's just one uh, of the prophetic sayings of hadith. There are a whole range of different hadiths about how the world ends and whether Jesus comes first or, or whether there's a Mahdi or whether it has to be a caliph. There are many, many versions. Uh, what's certainly the case is that I think in every single century of Islamic history, the people who lived in that century were convinced that they were the last or almost the last generation. That's, that's not just true to Islam either. No. I mean, no. humanity <laughs> seems to have an obsession with um, mm. being unable to, to look past its own... Uh, uh, generation. Let's talk about the West because this is true. I mean, it's interesting from all our points of view because if you are a Westerner, a sort of sentient Westerner, one of the things you have to grapple with is the extent to which your country or your system has actually made what has gone on in the Middle East worse. And we look at Syria, Diana Dark calls it a vicious battleground where upwards of 75 countries are playing out their rivalries at the expense of the Syrian people. Over half the population has been displaced, either or internally forced out as refugees. The UN has stopped counting the dead, the maimed, or worst, worst of all, the disappeared in torture cells. Do you, how much do you, do you feel, I'll start with, with you, Robert, but then really Theo and Toby as well, how much do you feel as, an, as the West, as the United Kingdom in this area, have we made things a lot worse? Unquestionably, we have made things a lot worse. I, I remember at the time of the Iraq war, I was opposed to it right from the beginning, I mean, I thought it was immoral, illegal and stupid, but I remember that Tony Blair before we actually went to war, summoned the Middle Eastern academic experts, experts on the modern Middle East, to number 10 to discuss the thing. And they were unanimous. Uh, You don't know what you're getting into. You're you're underestimating the problems of tribalism and Sunni-Shia split and so on. And Blair thanked them for their advice and had them shown out of the the door. Having said that, uh, there's one of the other reviews here. does make... It's Ephraim Kash. Rather makes the point... uh, I think he's hoping to make the point that the Arabs and Iranians are very, always terribly keen to blame what's happened to them on Western conspiracies. And sometimes they're right. Suez is an obvious example of a Western conspiracy that did a lot of damage in the Middle East. But an awful lot of the time they're wrong or they're exaggerating. That's interesting. Do you feel, I mean, guys, do you, do you, I mean, cause, do, do you think, because if you look at it on one level, Saddam Hussein, a terrible dictator, 
what's going on in Syria, what's going on in Libya. There is a certain moral argument you can make that when you see ill happening in the world, you should try to make it better. And just because you fail at that attempt to make it better doesn't mean that the attempt itself was the wrong thing to do. Well, the, the case of Libya is particularly uh, interesting because if you compare that to Iraq, I mean, I completely agree with Robert that it was the invasion of Iraq was illegal, immoral and stupid. It was terrible for that reason. It was also terrible because there was an absolute failure to rebuild the state afterwards and in any way to to bring different factions together, which Saddam had managed to do in his own appalling way. Um, the intervention in Libya, I remember at the time feeling slightly conflicted. I, I, I wasn't so hard and fast in my beliefs that it was a bad idea and Gaddafi was not only an appalling dictator he was he was in the process of destroying half his own people and had he been allowed a free reign who knows what untold destruction would have happened so the intervention there was not necessarily as immoral and it certainly wasn't illegal in the same way. It's now being blamed on Cameron of course. Um, It's now being blamed on Cameron but but the problem the huge problem once again was a complete failure to plan properly and to put in a proper infrastructure afterwards and that's why there were there were some brief months of hope after the deposition of Gaddafi which have now completely faded and and we have the morass of uh, civil war that that exists at the moment. And that's an interesting point as well when you talk about the the problems with making rash decisions to do something and not having any plans for what come afterwards and you kind of want to make sure that people who talk about scrapping something like the UN or you know saying that the UN is completely um, out of keeping with the times uh, of of getting rid of that as as we did with the League of Nations Um, you, you want to say yes but and then what what would be in its place so talking about the UN yes it's 70 years old it needs reforms don't scrap it keep it it's so important that we have this general assembly where it's it's, it's a place for everyone to talk but you need massive amounts of reforms I mean, there was a funny thing in the in the economist i think it was the, so the US um, their average speech time at the general assembly is 40 minutes and everyone else is told to keep it as close to 15 minutes as they can so that kind of feeds this idea of a very, very biased and unneutral body. Yeah. Well, Lydia Wilson, I'm interested in all your thoughts on this. Lydia Wilson talks about how humanitarian aid has been compromised by the West's politicised approach to assistance. So effectively what she's saying is because the West's always meddling, even the notion of help has become politicised. And that begs another question. Is what good can we now do as the West or the United Kingdom? Can we just be someone who offers aid without any requirements at all other than to say we'll simply help people at a humanitarian level and is non-intervention the future do you think Robert and then everyone are the lessons we've learnt from Iraq means that under any circumstances we are never going to intervene politically or militarily our role should simply be that of of providing humanitarian aid Uh, yes Uh, we were blamed for intervening in Iraq we were blamed for intervening in Libya. We're currently being blamed for not really intervening in Syria. Exactly. There's nothing we can do that's right. I, I, my view, I mean, it's horrible, terribly negative. I think less we are involved in Middle Eastern affairs, the fewer direct interventions we make, the better. Really, so, so the, almost the painful. So when you see the argument that you know we, the House of Commons debated going into Syria to, to take to take steps. Do you think the lesson should always be this is actually too big a problem for us to tackle? Yeah, and there is the problem of slippage. I mean, we have, in fact, done more in Syria than Parliament ratified. Um, There are a lot of special forces out there and so forth. We're not playing that sort of hands-off role that we were pretending to do. Hmm. I I do agree with Robert, um, but I I also think, boringly enough, these things should be taken on a case-by-case basis. Mm. And there was was a recent intervention, it's not quite the Middle East, but in Mali, which was a UN sponsor, but it was mostly a French initiative. And to a greater or lesser extent, that was successful or, you know, continues to be relatively successful. Oh, that's true. And Sierra Leone was a total success. Exactly. In many ways, Kosovo, Sierra Leone empowered Tony Blair, Mm. possibly morally speaking or in his own mind, to think he could fix a problem in Iraq. So two, two of his interventions, everyone would defend, wouldn't they? Absolutely, yes. But I mean, the, the case of Mali is interesting because you're, you're dealing partly with Islamism and it was recent. And, you know, it was it was smaller, far smaller scale, but it, it was relatively successful. And, you know, who knows whether, well, that, that doesn't look like it is going to empower more intervention because of the other disasters that are happening. Uh, meanwhile, we have Israel and Jerusalem. We touch a bit of it in this piece as well, so we should just refer to it briefly. It's called in, in the review, a centre of the three Abrahamic religions claimed as a capital by two embattled countries 
it seems an immense burden for a small city to bear, which is one of the understatements potentially of all time. <laughs> uh, what do you think, Toby? How is Jerusalem coping? How is it growing? Because the piece is about architecture in Jerusalem, really, isn't it? Yeah, well, I've, every, everything about Jerusalem is is on a kind of stone by stone, street by street architectural level. I mean, it's such a and it's you say how it's, how is it coping? It's been coping with these these tensions for millennia. So in a way, it's coping quite well because it knows how to cope. But if you go there, and I was there earlier in the summer, you really see how how the city is divided on such a minute level, even down to the the western wall, which you know has the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque on the top and the Dome of the Rock, and, and it's an incredibly important shrine to uh, to the Judaic faith uh, at the bottom, because uh, it was the uh, the former supporting wall of the uh, the Second Temple. It's obviously a different case from much of the rest of the Middle East. Again, how's it coping? It has a an Israeli government lurching increasingly to the right, incre- uh, increasing its stranglehold on uh, on the Palestinian population. However, I think if you're a Palestinian living in the West Bank at the moment, life probably seems comparably rosy compared to uh, other uh, uh, other Arab citizens living in Syria, for example. So I wonder if... if one of the facets of the Arab Spring has actually been to uh, cause a reduction of tensions in certain parts of Israel, although not Gaza. Um, finally, guys, what cause for optimism do we have? We have 12 pages of, uh, Robert, as you came in, you sort of misery of, to do with the misery. I mean, it's an endlessly fascinating subject because it kind of brings together all the worst of humanity at one level and kind of all the best of humanity in, in, in the region. Can the latter triumph over the former? Are we staring down what it amounts to? religious wars in the area for future millennia as well. Drones, drugs, counter-terrorism, fanaticism, <laughs> urban and archaeological vandalism, vanishing water resources. <laughs> My God, it's glum. <laughs> the, the drugs thing particularly, I think, is a bit worrying long term. I, I think the political and religious threats will fade away. It's just going to take a long time. We just have to be very patient. And that, as uh, one of the reviews said, not overreact to any atrocities that are inflicted on the West. And it's worth remembering, of course, that the chief victims of uh, Islamist atrocities are Muslims. Far in, they vastly outnumber the numbers of French and English people killed. In it. You've got more chance of dying falling over in your bath than being suffering a terrorist attack in Britain. I think Thomas, Thomas Moore said a million, uh, a million Muslims have died in the past 20 years since the upsurge in jihadist violence. That's a, an alarming number. But there are, there are small glints of optimism Go in, in mostly well in, in in just in these pages and in, in characters that we you know people that we that we learn about there's um an architect mentioned called mawa al-sabuni who in her home city of homs so she writes about how uh, different approaches to the architecture of her city have made it now into the ugliest city in Syria because one one man, mostly Assad, thought that uh, modern tower blocks were the answer. So it's it then and so he you know the beautiful way that the city used to be arranged with mosques and schools and hospitals all hustling in together was was raised to the ground. And what that does show is differences in in interpretations about you know deciding which way to to go and which way not to. But mostly, she's an architect who has now, from that, worked out her kind of her vision for rebuilding. Um, and, and her vision is actually quite beautiful. She says that for her, true architecture is a multi is multi layered with every detail expressing God and His creation. So her faith is clearly uh, clearly a moderate, peaceful solution. Um, and at the future of her housing projects, she has this central, this kind of guiding metaphor, which is namely the imaginative intuition of the Arabic language interpreting the same thing differently and coexisting somehow. I don't know, there are glints of optimism. And in other in other projects where you've got, you know, Palestinians and Israelis working together to try to help the Dead Sea, <laughs> you know, that, that's a terrible metaphor to end on because the Dead Sea is, is well, pretty l- dead. Let's not end on that because to- Toby has a quote you said. <laughs> oh, I do. Well, I was, was going to say never... Have you got, have never, you got a positive I, quote, I, positive, I mean, I was going to say never underestimate the ability of nations and populations to bounce back from the most terrible horrors. I mean, look at Japan in 1945, look at Germany in 1945. I have a quote from Moshe Dayan, who's not everyone's favourite person, including mine, and he's not known for his pacifism, but he says, every generation and its wars, every generation and its destructions, but even when gardens are uprooted and people are killed and exiled, the stones remain. They will be gathered from old ruins and for the umpteenth time set down one by one. Well, let's leave that there. That's almost all we have time for this week also. Thank you to the very well-rested Thea. And uh, to Robert Irwin, Mark Ford and Toby Lichty. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we have discussed today, plus... 
Ferdinand Mount's unmissable essay on Karl Marx, which we talked about on last week's podcast, Anne Crowther on the Mad Duke of Portsmouth, Rosemary Ashton on Disraeli's contingent Jewishness, Miranda Seymour on the slightly naughty Countess of Blessington, Russell Davis on the music of Rogers and Hart, Paul Genders on a self-indulgent book about Bowie, Jonathan Dore on the latest news about Arctic shipwrecks from the Victorian times, Larry Wolfe on Jewish Budapest, Richard Smythe on the agricultural world of Richard Jeffries and Barbara King on Tim Winton's Australia plus lots more. You can visit our website that-tls.co.uk to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at the TLS. We'll leave you with Mark Ford reading Thomas Hardy's wonderful poem about London coming up Oxford Street evening. Until next time, goodbye. Coming up Oxford Street evening. The sun from the west glares back and the sun from the watered track, and the sun from the sheets of glass, and the sun from each window brass, sun mirrorings too brighten from showcases beneath the laughing eyes and teeth of ladies who rouge and whiten, and the same warm God explores panels and chinks of doors, problems with chemists' bottles, profound as Aristotle's, he solves, and with good cause, having been ere man was. Also, he dazzles the pupils of one who walks west, a city clerk with eyesight not of the best, who sees no escape to the very verge of his days from the rut of Oxford Street into open ways, and he goes along with head and eyes flagging forlorn, empty of interest in things, and wondering why he was born. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.